When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited today. You can hear it in my voice how actually excited I am today. We are talking to someone absolutely incredible, even though he says and he doesn't believe that he's so incredible, but he is incredible. Um, we've got with us Rana Mitter, who is a professor of history at Oxford University. He's an award-winning author and broadcaster. He's written books like A Bitter Revolution, China's Struggle with the Modern World, China's War with Japan, 1937 to 1945, and his most recent publication, China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. Rana, welcome to the podcast. Alina, it's a huge pleasure to be here uh, in a slightly less chilly Oxford than I think it is for you in Poland, where I know you're speaking to me from. Yes, I think it's about minus five-ish outside, but no snow. I'm sure that delight is yet to come and it'll feel all lovely while you're all sort of uh, freezing down there in Poland and waiting to get inside away from yet another lockdown. (laughs) Oh, lockdown, that's a whole other kettle of fish. But uh, to be honest, I think we're going to be talking a bit about that, aren't we? A bit of COVID uh, at the end of this. We've got to touch on COVID. If we're gonna I'm sure it'll come in one place or another, trying to sort of fit the, of course, the role of plagues and diseases has affected Chinese history as much as it has many other countries in the world. And China itself, of course, is uh, at the centre of the storm one way or another when it comes to COVID. So as we trawl through various bits of modern Chinese history uh, today, Alina, uh, I think it's not impossible we may end up in uh, an assessment of, of the present day moment as well. I love this because uh, you talk about all of this kind of stuff in your new book, don't you? Yes, that's right. So in the book, which you kindly mentioned, which has got, I hope, the uh, provocative title of China's Good War and subtitled How World War Two is Shaping a New Nationalism. It is, despite the title, not actually a history of World War Two in China. I was lucky enough to be able to do that for a, a previous uh, book, China's War with Japan. But it's actually an examination of how China today in the 2010s, 2020s is coming back to World War Two, at least in terms of raiding the metaphor closet uh, in a way that uh, states in trouble tend to uh, tend to do with alarming regularity. And I speak as someone who is speaking in Britain at the moment, and you know, Alina, that in Britain, everything is World War Two. You know, Brexit is World War Two, COVID pandemic is World War Two. I'm told that in Poland, where you're sitting, uh, there's quite a lot of World War Two even now that uh, floats around the place as well. It's by no means a forgotten event. What tends to surprise people, at least in the West, is to find out that actually the World War II obsession is as central a part of the way that the Chinese think about themselves today 
as it is in many of the countries in the West that we're more familiar with as belligerents during that war. And I know that your Twitter handle is WW2Girls, so uh, I'm aware that you're very, very aware of the kind of wide range of, of what happened across the globe in terms of that global war. But the Chinese war experience, I think, does tend to be underappreciated in the, in, in the West. Uh, I mean, you know, just very quick bullet point statistics to give an idea of the scale of what we're talking about. Ch- China fought in World War II longer than any other allied power, 1937 to 1945. Over 10 million, maybe as many as 20 million Chinese civilians and military were killed during that war. Not as many as the Soviet Union, but still huge numbers. 80 to a million, 80 to 100 million Chinese became refugees in their own country during uh, that conflict as well. And the very painfully won modernization, the roads, the rails, the marketing networks that have grown up in the early 20th century as China moved from being an empire to being a republic after the deposition of the, the last emperor in, in 1911, all of these were smashed into pieces by China's war against the Japanese, which eventually became one of the theatres of World War II in Asia. So in a sense, it's not surprising that a conflict of that length and that violence should be still very important in shaping the way the Chinese think about their own identity. But again, you know, just to pull two or three quick examples from this year that we've just been living through, the year 2020. I know that your, your podcasts are podcasts to keep earliness, so people may be listening to this in 2021 or even, even after that. But I'm speaking to you at the end of this very difficult pandemic year. And if you look to what China's done this year in terms of trying to explain itself to the world, World War II keeps on coming up over and over again. At the beginning of the year, when the pandemic was spreading from China, the government of China started talking about their fight back against the virus as being a people's war, Renminbi-Zhang. In other words, the same phrasing that Mao used when fighting against the Japanese with his guerrilla warfare back in the in the 1930s. When a movie was released in China that became actually not just the most watched movie in China, but the most watched movie anywhere in the world in 2020, the movie The 800, Babai. It's actually about a World War II battle in 1937 by actually not Chinese communist, but nationalist troops fighting against the Japanese. The biggest hit on Chinese TV in 2020, a show called Chiltan, Autumn Cicada, which is about communist spies in uh, Hong Kong just after Pearl Harbor in 1941. And just finishing the year off, the state councillor in charge of foreign affairs, Yang Jiechu, made a big speech just a couple of weeks uh, ago in late November, I think it was, of 2020, talking about China's very long campaign to try and uh, change or get more diplomatic respect around the world. What's the metaphor he uses? Shu Jian protracted war, the title to anyone in China who will recognize it, of a famous essay by Mao in 1938 about the way in which they were going to fight against the Japanese. So over and over again, those World War II metaphors continue to shape Chinese life in all sorts of ways. And that book you mentioned, China's Good War, good in the sense of giving China this sort of moral narrative that we know that all allied nations or anti-Nazi, anti-fascist nations tried to draw from the World War II experience, makes it good in the sense of being good to shape the narrative about China's participation all those years ago and in the world today. They're drawing a very direct analogy between China's wartime contribution to the Allies in the 40s and China's contribution as what they would argue is a new type of world citizen in the very contemporary era as well. I'm quite fascinated by these uh, TV programs that are coming out. They actually sound really interesting. Have you watched them? 
Yes, and the thing is that anyone can watch them. You don't need to know a word of Chinese because they're all provided on YouTube um, and they all have English subtitles. Because I think the Chinese Communist Party is actually very keen for people to watch them because uh, they hope that they'll have a sort of propaganda um, effect. But actually, there's a better reason to watch them, which is that, as you will know, I'm sure, Helena, there are many ways to try and get to the heart, mind, soul, whatever you want to call it, of um, an entire nation. But watching what they watch on television is one really good and easy way to do that. And this particular program I've mentioned, Chilchan, I mean, first of all, if you want to settle in for it, you better, you know, assign a bit of box set time because we're talking 49 episodes here, each of an hour long. This is what happens when you're in China, you've got unlimited budgets, uh, which essentially they, they, they do have. And it has lots of, um, uh, lots, of, lots of space to expand the story. I should say, even though it's clearly being done as a piece of propaganda for the Chinese Communist Party, and I should explain what the message is, by the way, the reason it was made and, and it's been sent out this year is that last year, 2019, Beijing got really worried about the way in which Hong Kong's youths were going on the street in Hong Kong protesting against the government in Beijing. So they did lots of things, including passing a pretty draconian national security law um, in July of 2020, which you know basically cracks down on a whole variety of um, anti-Chinese uh, uh, anti, uh, protest. But they also decided to pump a lot of money into propaganda. And as I was saying earlier, they decided World War II is the way to go to try and make today's Hong Kong youth more patriotic. So the point of this series is that all all these you know, young men and women are underground communists fighting against the Japanese evil invaders in 1941, just after, as I say, after Pearl Harbor. And the message is very clear. These youths, entirely fictional youths, but nonetheless, were doing their patriotic duty. Why can't you do the same Hong Kong youth of, uh, of today? And it sounds like it's some kind of, you know, old Eastern European style propaganda effort. But actually, it's really well made. The acting is impressive. Um, you know, the ability to actually play these often quite sentimentalized roles with a certain amount of dignity is, is, is really clear. And actually, the plot line is fantastic. I mean, if you start watching it, you'll want to watch the next episode because you want to know what's going to happen. There's plenty of blood, guts shooting up. There's also a love story. Um, it, as propaganda goes, this is pretty much first class propaganda, it has to be said. So I highly recommend it and uh, just go on YouTube and, and find it. I'm going to stop podcasting now for the next month and I'm going to devote all my 49 spare hours to watching this, I think. Ha. Time well spent, I, uh, I, I suspect. Absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, certainly the, the media aspect of, of World War II in China is one of the ways in which that conflict is very much something that shapes the wider society. So, you know, TV programs are one example. In addition, things that you'll be familiar with, Alina, from, you know, knowing about Poland, Britain and all sorts of other countries, museums which tell a national story about World War II or um, Internet communities. I mean, you know, every country in the world has weird Internet communities where probably, I think, slightly unshaven middle-aged men are kind of, you know, swapping ideas. Well, in China, they swap ideas about many things, but amongst them are questions about who really fought the battles more strongly in World War II. Was it the communists or was it the nationalists? And they've all got this amazing detail about exactly which regiment, you know, went north at which point. And they get really down to the kind of weeds and details of it. But what it suggests to some extent is that in any society... Online geeks are online geeks. It doesn't matter if they're British, Chinese, American, Polish, whatever else it might be. They all have a similar sort of interest in the minutiae of the conflict. But when they're doing that, it's part of a wider metaphor for thinking about their own society as well, I, uh, I think. OK, I'm going to throw something incredibly random at you. I think th this podcast is going to turn into a bit of random throwing action here. I'm all for the random throwing. Throw away, as it were. So there's... there's 
there's so many things we can talk about on this podcast. It's absolutely insane. It's 20th century Chinese history is just incredibly. Do, do you think, Alina, we should have 49 episodes of it? Would that be a good way to go? Ladies and gentlemen, sorry, we are no longer now broadcasting any other history, but 49 episodes of Rana Mitter talking about 20th century Chinese history. Thank you very much. And goodbye. No, I'm joking. Sorry. <laughs> she says hastily. She says hastily. You heard it there, folks. That's a contract. Okay, I'll let you off on this occasion, Alina. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I think we should let's touch on the May the Fourth movement because yeah, I got taught this at university, but our listeners who probably have very little knowledge about this part of history have have no idea what I'm doing. May the Fourth in Poland. May the third is more interesting, you know, or May the 2nd, Flag Day in Poland. But May the 4th for China, what does that mean for them? A huge deal. And I have to say, you, you just sort of slipped by very quietly there, pointing about when you were at university, Alina. But my inside spies tell me that you were taught by the best, which is Professor Julia Lovell of Birkbeck uh, College, uh, University of London, one of the you know prominent historians, most prominent historians of China working today, who's just written a fantastic book on Maoism around the world, which has won all sorts of amazing uh, and lucrative prizes, I should uh, I should say. So I know that you were well trained when it came to thinking about this. So May the 4th. May the 4th be with you. I mean, you know, what is it that we can take from from this date? What does it mean? Well, I think May the 4th, for those who don't know, is probably one of the single most important days or dates that helps to define what modern China is about. It's a date that is so well known in China that if you just said it, you know, in Chinese, to any educated Chinese, they'll know exactly what you're talking about. You don't need to say May the 4th, which year, and I'll tell you the year in a second, but it's, it's just something that they recognize as having a kind of wider meaning beyond itself. The year that we're talking about is May the 4th, 1919. And it refers in its most specific definition to a student demonstration, about 3,000 young men, some women, I think, as well, making their way to the front of the Forbidden City in Beijing, you know, the front of uh, what's now in Tiananmen Square. In those days, it wasn't uh, a square. It was a much more sort of um, a crowded part of the, the architecture of the city of Beijing. But the Forbidden City was, of course, still very much there. It has been ever since the, the Ming Dynasty of, of you know, three or four hundred years, years ago. And why did these students gather in front of the Forbidden City? Because they were protesting an event which I think actually, you know, most of listeners to the, this podcast will know about from 1919, but from the other side of the world. And that was, of course, the signing of the Versailles Peace Treaty, because that was also the end of the Paris Peace Conference, the one that, you know, wonderful people like Margaret Macmillan have written about in, in Peacemakers, another fantastic book that I can't recommend highly, um, highly enough. But in that context, we always think about it as a European issue, you know, the treaty which Germany resented and the, the cause of, of World War II um, in, in Europe. But it's often forgotten that Chinese also signed up to the Versailles Treaty and they had to sign up under very, very dubious terms because um again it's not well known i mean i've just said in our previous bit of the conversation that china was involved in world war ii in a big way and people tend not to know that history but it also of course is involved in world war one and that bit of history tends not to be so well known either i mean although china was not a combatant power in world war one it came in on the allied side and it provided nearly uh no, actually over a hundred thousand laborers uh, who were basically shipped out to France and Belgium to the Western Front to do all the behind the lines, behind the trenches 
uh, hard work. So, you know, we all know about the, the horrors of the trenches of Flanders Field. If you ever wondered who dug the trenches in Flanders Field, in many cases, it was Chinese workers. So having made this huge contribution, and many of those workers never came back because they died of pneumonia or cold or, you know, trench, trench foot or, or whatever, um, the Chinese government at the time thought, well, now at least we will get back the former colonies of Germany that were um, left, uh, that, were, that were present on, on Chinese soil during the great kind of scramble for China of the late 19th century when various European powers plus the Japanese grabbed bits of Chinese territory. Uh, Britain, of course, grabbed Hong Kong and there were plenty of others. And the Germans had, had grabbed part of Shandong province. But then through various pieces of skullduggery, I won't get into all the details, but they're in various books, it turned out the Chinese weren't getting these former German possessions back, despite their wartime contribution. Instead, they were going to be handed over to the Japanese, who were also on the Allied side in, in World War One. And as a result, China's youth, you know, the nationalistic patriotic youth at the top universities like Peking University, heard about this. And they felt that it was a huge disgrace to China's name that, you know, it had overthrown its last emperor seven years before in 1912. And yet it was still a weak country that even though it had contributed to this massive global war, World War One was not getting the respect it deserved. And although the demonstration itself only lasted a few hours and was, was broken up eventually, it became symbolic of a wider change that started before that 4th May 1919 date of the demonstration, but then would go on for years and years afterwards. And this was something that became known also as the new culture movement, which is a lot of people, many of them quite young people, looking at their own society and saying, OK, China has thrown out, thrown out its last emperor. But we don't yet have a republic. We don't yet have a modern state that can really create the kind of strong, confident, prosperous country that we and the young people in particular in China deserve. And as a result, lots of new ways of thinking emerged from this period. So the, the you know, the, the, the embarrassment, the shame of being given this sort of terrible deal at the Versailles peace, uh, peace treaty became a sort of trigger almost for various things like the formation of the Chinese Communist Party. That was one thing that emerged in the aftermath of the, uh, of the May 4th movement, but also a huge literary movement in which some of China's traditional thinkers like Confucius were I think in some ways very unfairly kind of thrown out of the canon in China. And instead, what you have is, you know, new writers, people like the modernist Lu Xun, arguing strongly against Confucian tradition in China and saying instead that China needed to become a more modern, outward, gender equal society in which the old customs and old ways would not be allowed to um, uh, hold China in chains anymore. And the slogan that came up still has lots of resonance in China today. And it was a slogan that what China needed was two gentlemen, as they put it, Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy. Science meaning kind of technological development and the feeling that China had to create some kind of more forward-looking society that could make its own way in the world. And Mr. Democracy meaning popular participation in politics, no more autocracies, no more top-down government, instead the people themselves having a choice in what they did. So that's an awfully big agenda to come from one student demonstration on the 4th of May 1919. And let's be honest, it didn't all come just on that one day, it was a more of a symbolic event. But in the same way that if you talk to certain Westerners about the 60s, they know you don't mean literally 1960 to 1969. They know you mean a kind of period, a mood, a vibe in about social change. Well, if to a Chinese person you say May 4th, 
They know you don't just literally mean May 4th, 1919. They know that you mean that whole atmosphere, which in a sense was a bit like the 60s, but, you know, even before the Western 60s happened, um, in terms of forcing people to think in new ways, often very confrontational ways, about their lives, their identities, and the central question of, in the modern world, what did it mean to be Chinese. And I have to say, Alina, I'm sure you know this from having you know, read it yourself uh, in, in Chinese history. That is a question that is still going on today and which has not yet been answered. I find the Paris Peace Conference something incredibly interesting. And what actually ha- I, I, we've got to definitely do a podcast on this because it was such an interesting event. So widespread and so many things happened. Like, as you mentioned, for example, land being given away to the Japanese and I mean land being given away to the Japanese like uh, it, it blows your mind well it blew Woodrow Wilson's mind amongst other things when he first heard about it he said I'm not having any of this and then basically Lloyd George Clemenceau and various other highly reputable gentlemen basically showed us the bits of paper saying done deal dude that's not a direct quote from uh, Lloyd George I hate to do that just in case any historians are, are listening to, uh, to, <laughs> to this at which point Woodrow Wilson kind of threw up his hand and said okay you know whatever but he didn't say that either but uh, but you're right I mean the, the, the highways and byways and as I say you know Margaret McMillan's wonderful book Peacemakers is just one example but a really good one of how all of these complexities emerged in those few packed months that they were all sitting together in Paris so you're right Lynette it's just a, a fascinating fascinating event I'm going to throw another one at you only because I've been dying to get this put on the podcast. And Alex knows this, which is why I specifically, well, that's why I'm specifically throwing this one Are out. You do this behind her back, uh, Lena, because I know she's not here today. Are you sneaking this in? I am sneaking this in because Good I won't you. stop talking about it. She's like, oh, for God's sake, just talk about it on the podcast, all right? Um, so, <laughs> so we're going to talk about, we're going to go forward in the future because we talked about May 4th movement. We've touched on World War II because we always have to touch on World War II in my presence. We certainly do. We certainly do. I'm going to touch on the Cultural Revolution, only because, again, it's not something that's really spoken about. And a lot of people say, cultural, what? How can you have a cultural revolution? This is, for me, I mean, one of the most amazing and horrific things that actually happened in Japan. I mean, forget how many people saw In China, even. China, wow, Japan, wrong, 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 wrong country at this point. I'm stuck. Do you know why? Because I'm looking, I'm funny enough looking at notes and all I can see is Japan. I think that's why I've said Japan. Uh, <laughs> but it, not to worry. What Mao does and his little gang, of which we're going to talk about, is just unbelievable. And again, I can't fathom this. I can't fathom yeah. what and what he does to all of these innocent people. You've put your finger on it, Alina. I mean, this is the key thing. So the Cultural Revolution is a term that's well-known, you know, you don't have to know that much uh, Chinese history to know that between 1966 and 1976, China basically plunged itself into a kind of civil war, essentially. China went to war with itself. But an analysis of what happened and why it happened, you know, that's still an ongoing project for historians in all sorts of ways. So just to explain what it was, if we can even do that. As you say, I mean, you know, the the sort of mind-blowing nature of it is is something that still astounds people 50 years plus on. Essentially, the Cultural Revolution was a political movement spearheaded by the ruler of China, Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao, in which he basically declared war on his own party, the Communist Party of China, telling the wider population of China, particularly the students and the youth of China, that they had to rise up against the Communist Party 
but not against Mao himself, because the party had essentially been taken over by backsliders and revisionists were the terms that got used. In other words, people who he, you know, who are longstanding loyal members of the Communist Party for decades. And Mao is now saying that they were in fact traitors and had to be uh, rooted out. No Communist Party anywhere else in the world, not under Stalin, not under anyone, had exactly this sort of um, kind of inwardly directed um, violent counter-revolution. The Cultural Revolution, I think, is pretty close to being unique in that sense. And in terms of what happened, I mean, the statistics are absolutely horrific. Uh, you know, we have, uh, in terms of deaths, they were horrific, you know, perhaps one and a half to two million people killed or forced to suicide during those, those years, because essentially they were forced into it because anyone who was thought of as being bourgeois and therefore a backslider ideologically was forced to confess their crimes. People were made to stand out in the streets with their you know, arms stretched out for hours and hours on end in what was called the airplane position. because It looks like a sort of jetliner with uh, with wings outstretched. Um, people were forced to wear placards around their necks, sort of saying, you know, I'm the running dog of capitalism. Um, teachers in particular, anyone educated, anyone wearing Western clothes, anyone who se- was seen to have contact with foreigners and that could be soviets as well as westerners in fact all of them would be persecuted in many cases either killed or else psychologically bullied so badly that they you know the number of suicides in china went up by immense numbers immense numbers there were even some sort of you know events that could have ended up if it could be imagined even worse than they sounded in the city of changchun up in northeast china some of the local red guards you know the the, the motivated youth who basically rose up on behalf of mao against the communist party managed to find somewhere in a lab some radioactive equipment and basically started trying to make their own homemade atomic bomb, which would have definitely added to the, uh, um, how can I put it, uh, uh, um, noticeability of the Cultural Revolution had they actually managed to, uh, to, to explode it. But all in all, we're talking there about, you know, a really violent and inwardly directed period where essentially the regime goes to war with itself and brings the entire Chinese population along with it. If I might do a, an evil thing and do a quick counterplug, um, actually, uh, Lena, I should say that um, uh, Professor Judy Lovell, Professor Sun Peidong and I talk about the Cultural Revolution at length with Melvin Bragg on the In Our Time podcast from the BBC, which is available through uh, all good um, podcast uh, suppliers. So, you know, once you've had your fill of history hacks, which you should obviously do first, <laughs> you're allowed to go onto In Our Time and check out the Cultural Revolution section uh, uh, as well. But, you know, it, it bears talking about many times because it's such a transformatively horrific set of events. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Am I right in saying that Jung Chang herself, um, was it her parents that were persecuted in the Cultural Revolution or was she so persecuted? Is, 
So this is in Wild Swans. We're talking about the best-selling memoir by the author uh, Zhong Chang. Yeah. And um, my my memory of it, I read it a little while ago, but you know, it's a very um, gripping and affecting piece of work. Is that her father was a communist official, um, and he refused to do certain things that the Cultural Revolutionaries wanted him to do, and so he got into huge trouble, and the family got into huge trouble. But it's actually worth noting that you know her experience absolutely horrific and she wrote about it obviously with with immense skill and uh, and empathy was felt by so many people i mean off the top of my head um some books that i can mention that i've been very moved by as well uh one of the first and i think actually one of the best cultural revolution memoirs if you want to put it that way is by nian chung uh, who died a few years ago but uh, she did live through the cultural revolution it's called life and death in shanghai that's a shatteringly good memoir of um you know the, those horrific days or actually published very recently i would check out um the house of yen spelt y-a-n by the french chinese or the sort of the chinese author yen lan who wrote originally in french and it's been translated into english um but it's about her own family and her grandfather was Chairman Mao's spymaster. So, you know, really well connected in terms of the Communist Party. Her father actually was a, a famous, quite liberal-minded minister in the 1980s in the Chinese government. But, you know, the book starts with her grandfather, you know, someone very close to Mao, formerly being basically dragged off and arrested in 1968 in the middle of the Cultural Revolution. Her respected grandfather just disappears in the, in the night. And that story is something that you just hear over and over again through lots of Chinese families who have relatives old enough to have lived through those years, you know, something similar would have happened in pretty much every single family. It just tore them apart, didn't it? Absolutely, you know, horrifically destructive because the phrase tore them apart is right, but then you have to sort of dig down and say, well, what does that mean in the context of China at that time? And I think the worst thing, and this is really about, you know, tearing apart, is the breakdown of family relationships. Because to survive as a red guard, as a you know teenager in this uprising where the youth were being celebrated and the older generation were being condemned, you might have to condemn your parents or your grandparents. Not just they will be arrested and taken away. It might be you, the 15-year-old or 16-year-old, who was actually doing the condemning. And worse still, we now know from you know the, the records of many former red guards who later, in some cases, bitterly repented. In other cases, they didn't repent at all and didn't seem to, 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 to mind, um, that they actually enjoyed doing it. You know, the thing is that Clearly, anyone at that age is very malleable in a society where there's no alternative point of view. Everyone being told Chairman Mao is like a godlike figure, that it's your duty you know, to, to rebel is righteous is one of the, the slogans that was used at the time. And if you're told that the bourgeois backslider who happens to be your grandfather or your mother is someone who has to be brought down, you will bring them down. And it was not until 10 years, 20 years later that people were able to process the trauma, not just of the horrific events, but of being complicit and collaborating in those events. And I have to say that those wounds have not healed even today. There are plenty of people now who are older people who were teenagers just 50, 60 years ago. It's, it's a long time ago, but it's not an unimaginably long time ago. And the scars of the Cultural Revolution still shape many, many Chinese families, and many aspects of Chinese society, even today. Let's move forward a little bit in time. Actually, it's something not so long ago, uh, 10 Gosh, my mathematics is out 12 years ago. Luckily, this is right? the maths podcast in that case. <laughs> it's not a mathematical podcast. If anybody ever, I'm, I'm highly dis, uh, dispraxic. This, uh, everything right now. Uh, discalc- I have a discalculator as well, which doesn't help. So so this is impressive that I've managed to work out that it's 12 years ago. Um, the uh, 2008 Olympics. I mean, what does that have anything to do with shaping China? 
2008, you're absolutely right. And actually, it feels like a very long time ago, I mean, more than a dozen years ago, in terms of the distance that China's come since then. So I would say, and with 12 years of perspective, I think that I, I, I'd stick by this, actually, that you can regard that year as being a sort of watershed moment, a kind of turning point moment for modern China, in some ways that I would consider to be positive, and in other ways that I think are deeply negative. So I'll explain what I, what I mean by both of those. In positive terms, I think this is a moment where, you know, unarguably, China became a global actor. And it was, you know, the Olympics was bid, bid for and eventually granted to Beijing on the grounds that this was, you know, the phrase that was used, China's coming out party into the, uh, into the wider world. In other words, that China was going to showcase itself, what its capacity to do in terms of massive spectacle uh, could, uh, could provide. And it certainly did that. I mean, the Beijing Olympics were many things, but they were certainly very, very spectacular um, indeed. And that was the moment, I think, at which, in some senses, China stopped being embarrassed or in some ways denying the fact that it sought to be a global power of that sort and instead found itself really, you know, embracing the idea of itself as a more global actor. 2008 also helped China to do that, Alina, because one of the other events of a dozen years ago that you're probably more tactful to uh, uh, to avoid was it was the year of the global financial crisis when basically the entire you know economic system of debt and finance that most of the world was was running under pretty much collapsed in a very short period and the chinese managed to actually avoid a collapse through a variety of economic measures which would not have been recommended by the west uh, including sort of spending on lots of infrastructure, but also finding themselves thinking, you know, maybe these Westerners don't know that much about how to run an economy. Maybe we can do this for ourselves. So the Olympics also became, in 2008, became a symbolic moment in terms of that turn in which China moved away from thinking maybe we need at least somewhat to look at the West and draw from what they're doing or whether it's economics or democracy, whatever it might be, and instead start the journey of saying, you know what, now we got this. We have got... The world's second biggest economy, as it became about 2010, 2011, we've got the world's second biggest military. We are you know, providing infrastructure and economic support to other countries around the world. We know what we're doing. And that's very much the mode that China has been in ever since those Olympic Games. But the flip side and the negative side, I think it is a negative side, is that China's move towards being a much more constrained authoritarian society has got worse during those years as well. You know, China was never going to be a democracy in the sense that you know, the United States is, is, is a democracy. But there were pockets of real liberalism, including a press that was allowed to write to some extent about corruption. The social media, which often surprises people in China, Weibo and others, were really quite free and very frank about uh, what they didn't like about the government in the early 2010s. And all that started to really come to uh, an end in the early 2010s, um, mid-2010s, maybe about 2012, 2013. So... The Olympics allowed a brief moment of China sort of opening itself up to more questioning in terms of civil society, press, media, not democratically, but with certain you know windows being opened, you might say. And ever since those windows have been slammed more and more shut, leading to where we are today, which is where China is a society that is much richer than it was in 2008, in some ways much more globally confident, but also much less liberal than even the limited liberalism that it had perhaps around the time of Olympics when it was doing more to try and impress the rest of the world. So do you think China has gone back just a little bit? I mean, considering Dao Xiaoping was kind of the man who, well, I don't know if you want to say is the man who made modern China. I don't know, in your opinion. Why not? Why not? I think there's a very good argument that uh, he did make a lot of modern China. So fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think at that point he brought China so far forward that at 2008, 
they were kind of going backwards a little bit? I think that the what these different leaders were doing was different sorts of achievements with different sorts of flaws. So, you know, if you go back to Mao, who we've been talking about quite a bit for obvious reasons, then if you look at Mao, you can see him both, as is seen in China today, as the founder of the country and the man who instigated the Great Leap Forward and Cultural Revolution, which between them killed tens of millions of people. And both these things are true. And, you know, they create a sort of cognitive dissonance because without Mao... Uh, the kind of, you know, very solid, confident Chinese state that you have now was not impossible to achieve. But perhaps, you know, I think one has to give a certain amount of credit that Mao's driven nature pushed China more in that direction. And yet it came at the price of tremendous violence, which I don't think you can see any positive sign in whatsoever. So all of that was true. And then you know, one of the reasons we can say that, I think, in a fairly objective way is that, you know, the next big guy who comes along, Deng Xiaoping, reverses huge amounts of that very repressive machinery that Mao had put in, including, of course, the Cultural Revolution that we were talking about just a few minutes ago. On the other hand, Deng also shows that he draws the line in terms of popular participation in democracy. And the obvious stain on his record is 1989 Tiananmen Square, the massacre of peacefully protesting students and workers in the centre of Beijing. And although other countries have had massacres that have scarred their history too, China is amongst the countries that still hasn't really come to terms with that. You know, there's never been a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There's never been any kind of public inquiry. Lots of other countries like South Korea and indeed uh, the territory of Taiwan have managed to move on from in some ways similar massacres in their recent history to say, you know, evil was done here. This is why. And this is how we make sure it never happens again. You know, that's never happened in China. So that's Deng Xiaoping as well. And today, moving, you know, fast forward through the, the next set of leaders, we are talking about a China that on the one hand, you know, you have to give credit to certain real achievements, you know, poverty alleviation, the level of technological innovation in China today is absolutely astounding. It may be the second or third most innovative tech environment in the world um, after the United States. And that's something that few people thought that an authoritarian state like China could ever manage. But that all said, it is at the price now of the suppression of many of the limited but real civil liberties that did exist until a few years ago. China has been getting more noticeably um, constrained in terms of what you can say, what you can write about, what you can discuss, even compared to a few years uh, ago. And so every leader, as I say, seems to have both something they can point to in terms of forward progression, maybe on the economic front, and yet another level, something that seems to push in the other direction when it comes to individual liberties in politics. Just for fun, I don't know if you want to call this fun. All right, it's all been fun, Alina. Just for fun. Out of all of these leaders, we're going to exclude Mao because he doesn't even come into this running at all. Out of all of these leaders, which one do you think moved China forward in the best possible way? It's a really good question. And because they all do different things at different times, it's, I'm going to sort of hedge, but I will answer your question uh, to, to put a definitive answer. But I think you still need to look at Deng Xiaoping and you need to start, I think, you know, anyone in good conscience can't start talking about Deng Xiaoping without talking about 1989, as I just did, and saying, that, you know, that is the stain on his reputation that will remain until there is some sort of reconciliation, which might come, but not immediately. But it is worth saying that I think without the moves that Deng Xiaoping took, China would not have developed the kind of economic forward movement that it has had, the kind of 
growth uh, uh, in terms of uh, its, its, its global role. And he did see the importance and actually pushed forward the importance of the idea of China having to be an actor that existed within the international society that you know, exists, the United Nations, international institutions and global governance, as opposed to trying to sort of smash them from outside, as Mao, I know you wouldn't mention him, but I'm going to mention briefly, um, did in, the, in that sense. So in terms of the transformational power, I think even other Chinese leaders today, if you were to ask them privately, and I, sadly, I've never had any opportunity to do so, nor am I likely to do so. But I think in private, they'd probably come down on Deng Xiaoping as being the one outside Mao who is really the transformer they used to nickname him they nicknamed him many things but one of the nicknames was the steel mill because he seemed to kind of run on very limited fuel mostly cigarette smoke as far as we could tell and never stopped like a sort of dynamo uh, he was a man who basically pile drove and pushed hard to get to where he wanted chi- where he wanted china to be and he got a tremendous way a pr- tremendous amount of the distance before he actually died in 1997 I was really worried there when you came out with the nickname. I thought you were going to come out with something like Little Mao or Mao, well, it, the copy of Mao or something really ridiculous. Well, I was about to say that Deng Xiaoping, I think, probably wouldn't. I mean, he, he, I think there were many nicknames he had. He probably didn't mind them all that much. I think he didn't have the sort of personal vanity that Mao clearly did. Mao really, really cared what people thought about him. I don't want to sort of romanticise this element of Deng, because I'm sure he had his ego, as all leaders do. But it is fair to say that I think he was more concerned with getting things done sometimes some pretty nasty things, but nonetheless, in terms of getting things done, then he was about self um, uh, grandiosity. And uh, you can see this in that one of his orders, and it was actually you know maintained for, for many decades by his successors, was that unlike with Mao, there should be no statues of him anywhere. So that's why you, when you go to China, you won't see statues of Deng Xiaoping anywhere. He insisted there should not be those sorts of memorials uh, to him. So he was someone who was able to temper his ego to achieve a goal And that hasn't always been the case for leaders, either in China or elsewhere. So the bottom line is he wasn't arrogant enough to have a cult. I think it's more than that, even. I think he saw, and anyone who lived through the Cultural Revolution saw the same thing, that having a cult of personality like the cult that was built up around Mao was profoundly dangerous and destructive for China as a whole. He saw how much the economy, the society had been torn apart by the Cultural Revolution. And I think he did, you know, from what we can tell, he felt very strongly that whatever he did, he had to forge a new system of Chinese government that on the one hand, kept power absolutely ruthlessly in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. He was never in favour of multi-party democracy or anything of that sort, just wasn't on the agenda for Deng. But also in working out a kind of systematic and less violent way of doing politics. So that's when the rules came in that, you know, essentially Chinese leaders were supposed to do only 10 years in power, two five-year terms, and then, you know, on your bike, that's it. You know, you'll be the the next one uh, along uh, along the way. So I think talking about regularizing Chinese politics might be one of the things that you could put uh, in in Deng Xiaoping's column in terms of what he was trying to to do. I know we're not usually very positive about Mao because he was a horrible person and the things he did was just horrible. But I've got to give it to him that he did the one thing that no other communist leader could do, and that was have a cult. Well, 
it's an interesting question as to whether another leader could actually have that kind of cult or not. I think the circumstances of the 1960s, when the cult of Mao really takes off, uh, ahead of the Cultural Revolution, but obviously during it as well, um, was to do with the circumstances of the time. For instance, China was a very, very closed off country because, you know, it was alienated from the United States, alienated from most of the West. If nobody much can come in or come out of your country, it's much easier to have a very closed environment in which you can build that sort of uh, cult. And then... You could give credit, I don't know if credit's the right word, but you could certainly give some kind of motivation to the fact that Mao was a very distinctive human being in all sorts of ways. I agree with you. I do not think he was a very attractive human being in in all sorts of ways, not least his careless use of violence. I think this is one of the things that really is very, very disturbing about Mao, that he clearly cared very little about individual human lives um you know this sort of line that if there was an atomic bomb you know millions of chinese might be wiped out there were millions more to replacement this was not a man who gave great thought to the value of any one individual human life although to be fair many other chinese leaders of, of that era were not that merciful either but there is no doubt that there was something about mao that gave him a charisma people have occasionally done sort of you know kind of drinking games and in china i tell you there are a lot of drinking games um and uh, maybe in the next podcast, we'll have a go at one of them. But in this drinking <laughs> I'm, game... I'm game. I'm very absolutely. much... Absolutely. We might do the, the, the Chongqing Sanjiu, which is the three types of liquor. So you have to do first the wine and then the kind of white spirit and then the really kind of deadly one that's basically you could use it as rocket fuel, if it possibly is rocket fuel, we would say. But in, this, in, in the middle of this drinking game, you know, people would ask questions about, well, supposing Mao... You know, actually, one of his colleagues, not in a drinking game, but just as a thing, said, you know, supposing Mao had died in 1949 or 59 or 69 rather than 76, how would he be remembered? And one of the things that you have to note is that if Mao, you know, had died or been pushed out of power earlier on, someone else in that top Chinese Communist Party leadership would have taken over. Could any of those people have had a cult of personality, a kind of charismatic cult of the Mao sort? You know what? I think you're right, Lena. I don't think they could. Not because they weren't competent in their own terms. People like Liu Xiaoqi, Shen Yun, Peng Dehuai were, um, you know, veterans of the Long March. They were veterans of the World War II battle against the, the Japanese. You know, these were people who had a long revolutionary career. Their dedication to the cause could not be uh, doubted. You know, even Deng Xiaoping... But did they have that kind of, you know, dangerous, volatile charisma that clearly Mao must have had during that time? You know what? I don't think so. Uh, so I think, you know, there's, there's something to what you say. Yes, I would say circumstances make a difference. You know, in a more open society, I still think the cult of personality would have been harder to maintain. But in the closed China of the 1960s, along with this highly charismatic political actor who could basically, you know, put out messages that, that to say that people should do exactly what he wanted rather than what the party as a whole wanted, um, it became a very combustible combination. I love that answer. I think that's so eloquently put. Thank you kindly. Well, perhaps I should take a job by propagandising somewhere in that case, uh, but preferably not for Mao, who I think fortunately no longer needs any propagandising services. He had a guy called Chen Boda who did all that stuff uh, uh, for him, who was uh, quite a, uh, a colourful character in his, in his own right. Okay, let's touch on the last subject, which everybody wants to talk about this one, because there's so many conspiracy theories coming out left, go right. On, and go on, go on, go on. Which is COVID. I mean, first mm. of all, China is supposed to be the whole hub. It was created in China and it's all China's fault, is the bottom line of what people are saying. 
Well, it depends which people you're talking to, uh, uh, Luna. I, I can't, I can't speak for who you're, uh, you're meeting in lockdown down at the, uh, uh, you know, kind of in the, in the, in the mean streets of, uh, of whichever drinking den you may be inhabiting. Let's get drinking into this conversation quite a lot, aren't we? I think this is a sign that next time I have to, have to tool up. Polish vodka is a wonderful thing. I have to, uh, I have to say. Okay, sorry. Back to your question. I'm getting carried away here. Um, I, I'm going to be a bit disappointing here, but I'm going to go for cock up not conspiracy when it comes to covid sorry about that it's not that china doesn't have a lot to account for and i'll say in a moment what that is but looking at what we know including from leaked documents of which there have been quite a few in the last few months most of the evidence seems to suggest that the big conspiracy theories that somehow this was cooked up in a lab or, or whatever don't really seem to hold water in any meaningful way what seems to have happened and you know if there's more evidence then you know let's 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 hear it is something that's quite plausible because basically it's a sort of it's a story about lack of organization and incompetence you know very very badly kept live meat markets where viruses are jumping around between species you know famously it's sort of pangolins and bats and all sorts of animals which normally would never come near each other virus mutating as we know that they do and then making its way into the 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 human human chain and then the local authorities in wuhan and this is where the chinese communist system really has to take responsibility not telling their superiors because they're terrified of what might might happen to their job prospects if they admit there's a massive unknown virus running around the city and that um uh you know they have no idea what to what to do about it um and even the leaked documents recently suggest that actually the kind of cock-up end of things does have a lot of legs to it. The idea that there's some huge, all-encompassing conspiracy top-down, there just doesn't seem to be much evidence uh, evidence for it. That doesn't mean that China doesn't have a lot of questions to answer, and I think transparency on these issues is the best sunlight. It's very disheartening to see China, you know, basically getting cross with Australia and other countries for asking for an international inquiry. And I think a sort of more limited inquiry has, in fact, now started uh, with a certain amount of international presence grudgingly accepted by China. But I think that's a different issue from the issue of did they deliberately start it? And I have to say, I haven't seen any evidence that suggests that's the that's the case. I love being able to talk to you because we can talk about the history of China. We can talk about something slightly more modern. And then we can talk about something that's happening right now. It's it's such a beautiful thing to be able to do. It's a huge pleasure to be able to range far and wide with you, Alina. That's the, always the great merit of your podcast. Well, thank you so much for joining us because you were so eloquent in putting all of this together and and very generous for me throwing things at you randomly left, right and centre. So really, thank you so much. Hugely enjoyed the conversation, Alina, and I very much hope that there'll be future conversations on Chinese history on History Hacks. And I'd recommend everyone to uh, download and tune in. Thank you. Join us tomorrow when Josh Proven is back to talk all about the legendary life of Manuela Sanz. She is a badass. She's a South American revolutionary who kicked ass. So join us to find out all about her. And then join us on Saturday for a sharp special, Sharp Sword. We were very excited because James Purefoy came to chat with us and we found out how they basically shunned health and safety and tied him one-handed to a horse and then just decided to see what happened. So don't miss out on that one. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join 
there's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 